from the Old Testament. It's from Psalm 89. If you're using that blue Bible in front of you, it's page 495. Very simply, Psalm 89 is um, a recounting of God's promise to David from 2 Samuel 7. If you remember the story, David said, I want to build God a house. And God sends Nathan to him and says, no, you will not build me a house but I will build your house and you will never fail to have someone from your descendants sit upon my throne. So Psalm 89 is a long rehearsal and recounting of that promise. We're going to pick up at verse 19, but I want you to pay a special attention when we get down to verse 27. You'll see why in a minute. Maybe. (laughs) You will see why. Don't worry. Of old... You spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to, my, to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David my servant with my holy oil. I have anointed him so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall, be strength, shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness... And my steadfast love shall be with him. And in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Notice how the two lines go together. The firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Verse 28, my steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever, and his throne as the days of the heavens. And now we turn to Colossians chapter 1, as we continue our series through Colossians, getting on with the gospel. Not leaving it behind, not shoving it in the bookcase, but actually getting on with it in our lives. Getting on with the gospel, we're just picking up right where we left off. At verse 15, this is after Paul has told us that God qualified us, hit the golden buzzer for us, that he has taken us out of the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And now Paul is saying, and I want you to know who this Jesus is, starting at verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. What I read to you from Psalm 89 and from Colossians 1, it is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh Jesus. We have such a thin and meager perspective on who you are. A life coach Jesus, a buddy Jesus, a lucky charm Jesus. But you are so much more, so much richer and so much bigger and grander than anything we could muster up in our imaginations. Today, Lord, may we walk away from this place amazed at who you are. 
Amen. You may be seated. Most of you who come here any regular regularity, members here are familiar with this passage. It's one of our confessions of faith that we use every six weeks in the white supplemental book. And so some of the language should be very, very familiar to you. This, my friends, is the gospel grounding that gives us steady turf under our feet to get on with the gospel. And steady turf is really important. We watched a football game the other day where, as it used to be, this is the way it used to always be, is that most football games were actually played in the baseball diamond because it already had the seat set up and everything else, and so that meant something had to be done with the infield. Do you remember the infield is always what? Dirt. Yeah, it's always dirt. So you have to put down sod on the infield so that way you have green turf through the whole football for the football game. The problem is, is that when you put down sod, if you're a running back and you make a sharp turn, and they always make sharp turns, and it almost always is on that sod. If you turn, guess what happens to that sod? Boom, behind you, and guess where you go? Flat on your face. And that game we watched, that sod was not prejudiced. It hated everybody. Both teams, every time they would get down there and do that turn, that sod would come up and they would go down. But notice that this is gospel grounding to give us steady turf under our feet. Deep, deep roots that run down and hold that grass so that way we can get on with the gospel. And it all starts with who? Who? Now, before we go too far, you need to recognize that verse 15 through 23 all go together. And those verses, we're only going to deal with 15 through 20 today, and then we'll deal with 21 through 23 next week. But those verses together are the template. If you ever use a template, you understand what I'm talking about. They're the template by which Paul is going to critique all of the troubles in chapter 2. All the troubles in chapter 2, you will notice him making reference back to this particular statement from verse 15 through 23. And so, my friends, everything Paul says here is meant to give the Colossian Christians and meant to give us a way out of being pygmy Christians by removing the pygmy Jesus promoted by those plugging the vain philosophies and empty deceits we'll run into in chapter 2. In fact, everything laid out here in verse 15 through 23 is about the Jesus whom Paul proclaims to bring about maturity. Verse 28, him we proclaim. Who, Paul? The Jesus I just talked about in 15 through 23. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone that we may present everyone mature in Christ. You need this Jesus to grow up. But also it's this Jesus that he proclaims for our growth. Chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, the one I just talked about in chapter 1, that therefore as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding with thanksgiving. This is a, a very significant passage here. Deeply important. And so Paul begins then with, who Jesus is regarding creation. Here's your first point, creation, verses 15 through 17. Now Paul begins and he says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Before anything ever was, he already, he already is there. 
There never was a time in which he was not. That's a very classic formula, that statement there. There never was a time in which he was not. Therefore, the Son is and has always been, Paul says, the image of the invisible God. He is the image, the icon of the invisible God. And in the words of the letter to the Hebrews that we heard as our call to worship this morning, he is the radiance of the glory of God. When you think about the sun, you know the radiance of the sun and its warmth and everything goes with the sun itself. You know what I'm saying, right? Am I laying down something you're picking up? Okay. All right. So you know those two go together. And without the one, you ain't got the other. Okay, same thing here. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, what is Paul referring to? That he's the image of the invisible God. Well, you know, we like to use mirrors. For all of us vain people, we love mirrors. And probably most of you used one this morning to make sure your hair didn't look all wonky. Uh, It didn't work, by the way, for some of you. Sorry. So you got a mirror, and the mirror tells you things, right? So there's Berta, right? I can see Berta's reflection. I know where Berta is. I can see her exact imprint of her image, right? That's what Paul is driving at in reference to Jesus, that as you look at Jesus, you see the exact representation and reflection and imprint of God. Now, that's huge. In other words, if you want to know what God looks like, you look to Jesus. Now, I'm telling you, this is huge. I had an office partner when I was in the Air Force, and, and he started going to college. He saw that I had finished my bachelor's degree, and he knew he needed to get ready to retire, so he started going to night school. He goes to college. He went to a Christian college. He comes back the next day. He hardly ever went to church, so you have to understand some of this. And he comes back, and he says, man, I was so excited last night. The professor told me something I've always wondered about, and it really is helpful. I said, really, what's that? He said, the God of the Old Testament is a mean God, and the God of the New Testament is a God of love. And I was like, I almost came out of my skin. I hope he misheard him. But there are a zillion Christians in North America who think that. But dear friends, you want to know what the God of the Old Testament looks like? Look at Jesus. That's Paul's point. Or to put it in the words of a Scottish theologian named Donald MacLeod, there is no unchrist likeness in God. There is no unchrist likeness in God. I think this is huge. It's giant. And so then, Paul goes on to say that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Now, we often use firstborn, and even the Bible often uses firstborn for the very first child born, and usually, primarily, the first son that was born. But firstborn does not automatically and essentially mean the first child born. A good example, from a bad example, something like that, is Jacob. You go, look at Jacob's very highly dysfunctional family. Anybody that marries four women, he's got problems. And they're all in competition, and there's all kinds of manipulation and underhandedness, lying, cheating, all that stuff is going on. Well, his oldest son, his first child born is Reuben. Reuben gets involved in an incestuous relationship with one of Jacob's wives. He loses any possibility that he was going to be the firstborn at that moment, the firstborn becomes one of the younger sons. His name was Joseph. 
he becomes the firstborn, and in him he inherits twice of whatever Jacob had, and also the prestige. Firstborn does not always mean the first one born. It actually has another element to it. And so you heard it, and I emphasize it when you were reading Psalm 89, where David is called the firstborn. David wasn't the first one born. He was the youngest fella in his whole family. He was the last son born. What does God mean? Well, he tells you what he means. He will be the firstborn, the highest, the highest, the highest of the kings of the earth. Oh, firstborn language actually is referring to rulership language in some cases, and in this case specifically. He is the firstborn. He is the ruler. The point is, and you will see this in the rest of verses 15 through 17 and beyond, is that what Paul is emphasizing that Jesus is King of kings, and he is Lord of lords. That he, Jesus, is the ruler of all creation and creatures. Therefore, he is the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. As Paul goes on to say, verse 16 and 17, For by him all things were created. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now notice that this includes without exclusion. Paul is piling up words here so you know that there is no one excluded. This includes without exclusion all things in heaven and on earth. The things that are seeable and the things that are unseeable. Even including thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities, Paul says. In fact, just in case we forget that statement, Paul will bring it up again in chapter 2, verse 10, that Jesus is the head of all rule and authority. In some way, our Lord Jesus holds sway over all creation powers and governances, even the powers and governances that have hearts and blood and brains. Now, at this point, one may ask very well, well, who are these thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities Paul's referring to here in Colossians 1? We're Presbyterians, and we like John Calvin, so I'm going to quote John Calvin. John Calvin put it this way. He thought that they were angels, both the benign, the good angels, the benign, and the malign, even the evil. That Jesus is over all of them. Well, my friends, that's about as good an explanation as you're going to get from about anybody. Think of these, these rulers and thrones and dominions and principalities. Think of them as entities, as beings, as personal forces that have an influence in lives and in realms of humans. And they're unseen. Sometimes they show their hands, so to speak, in human thrones and in human dominions and with human rulers and with human authorities, sometimes. And what is Paul saying? Jesus, the firstborn of all creation, has the ultimate say-so. Are you listening? He has the ultimate say-so over them one and all. Now, Paul's statement is not meant to give us a rallying cry or marching orders to become some kind of Christian Antifa anarchist group. We all serve no thrones because only Jesus is the king. We don't have no... No, it's not what this is meant for. 
for us to rise up and go burn down houses and shops and so forth. Instead, it's meant to remind us who it is that is in supreme control. In case we ever forget, he's the one who is over all thrones and dominions and rulers, etc. It helps us to respond the very way Peter told us to respond. We read it before our confession of sin when he said, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, emperors, governors. But he says, be subject for the Lord's sake. What is that referring to? Because Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. He's even over them. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Well, more on this subject about thrones and dominions, rulers and authorities, anon, somewhere down the road. But for now, here is who Jesus is regarding creation. All things were created through him and for him. All seven continents, the mountains, the rivers, the forests, the stars, the moons, the planets, the suns, the comets, the genes, the DNA, the T-cells. The intestines, those of you who have intestinal problems like I do, this should be good news. The intestines, your body, your brain, your blood, your bones, all that is visible to the human eye and all that is not visible to the human eye. And he is before them all, Paul says here. He's before them in time, from all eternity, but he's also before them in primacy. Plus, notice Paul says that Jesus is the gorilla glue. He's the gorilla glue that keeps it all together. He, in him, all things hold together. That means the molecules, the atoms, the laws of physics, the dynamics of biology are all in his hand. And he keeps them together. And he keeps them from heading off into the various forms of utter chaos. I don't know about you, but that's great news. This is who Jesus is. But who he is is shown even more clearly. Verses 18 through 20 and conciliation. Verses 18 through 20, conciliation. Now notice as he, Paul begins in verse 18, he talks about our Lord's incarnation. When he begins and he says, um, and he is the head of the body, the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, Etc. For in him all the fullness of God was meant to, uh, pleased to dwell. Notice that part of creation then is our Lord's incarnation. When the eternal Son of God became man, and so was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. When the eternal God became man, the eternal God entered into, fully into creation to redeem creation. And the first part of his creational rescue is the church. The church is part of Christ's creational rescue. Therefore, as Paul says, he is the head. He's the head of the body. He's the head of the body. Do you hear like this connection language? What happens if I lop off your body? So there's a little twist. So see if you're awake. What happens if I lop off your body? What's going to happen to your head, right? What's going to happen if I lop off your head to your body? Come on, somebody. Come on. 
you ain't, you ain't, you ain't living very long. You know what I'm saying? There is a union here. He's the head of the body. And so it's his church that lives and exists at his beck and call, at his command. But also to attack his body is to attack his person. And when the body is sick and suffering, he feels it. More to this as we go along through the next few weeks. But further, he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He is the one who has gone before us, gone ahead of us. Through the valley of the shadow of death. And he has risen on the other side unscathed and intact three days after he was slaughtered he rose from the grave body blood bones toenails and hair never subject to mortality or misery again it's the firstborn from the dead he's the one who has gone ahead of us through the valley of the shadow of death he's risen unscathed and he thus has blazed the trail for us you have hold of him you have hold of him, he will bring you through even your greatest enemy, death. Why is that? That in everything he may be preeminent. That in everything he may be preeminent. That's really the direction of this whole set of verses that is taking us to see Jesus the preeminent. Not Mr. Trump, not Mr. Biden, not Mr. Putin, or put anybody else you want to in there. Jesus is the preeminent. That's the whole point, and his preeminence is seen and experienced more clearly in a very specific way, in a humanly impossible way. You see, something has gone awry. All creation and all creatures have become chaotic have become resistant, have become rebellious, have become revolutionaries. All creation and creatures. And so God entered fully into his rebellious, rankled, revolutionary creation. For in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Notice he didn't come into creation to blast us all into oblivion. Rather, he came as a remedy. He came as rescuer. He came to turn all of the upside downness and the inside outness, to turn it right side up and right side out. Through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace. By the blood of his cross. My friends, you get a hint of what Jesus did, what God did in Christ there in the incarnation and in the death and burial of our Lord, etc. You get a hint of this. You get a glimmering reflection of this. When you see law enforcement officers running into the gunfire to rescue someone who is being victimized. You get a glimmer of this when you see soldiers running into the ambush to gather up their their buddies out of the gunfire. You see a glimmer of exactly of what our Lord Jesus did. You get a glimmer of it 
in what happened recently on the 9th of January in Ironton, Ohio. As a house was blazing and burning and a 35-year-old woman was inside and she was trapped, the firefighters, what did they do? They broke through one of the walls, braving the fire. They went into the fire to take her out and save her life. That's what you see our Lord Jesus doing here, what God did in the flesh. The fullness of God in Jesus came to be vandalized by the vandals, came to be oppressed by the oppressor, came to be brutalized by the brutal, came to be ransacked by the rebels. And who are all those? Who are the vandals, the oppressors, the brutal, and the rebels? Us. Us. Well, why did he do that? He came to take all of the religious and regal, kingly or political, whatever, the the religious and regal corruption that we humans could pour out, and we pour it out often, all the time. All of the religious and regal corruption that we could pour out. He came to take it upon himself, to smother it, to snuff out its potency and its power, and then, and then to launch his world rescue project. Conciliation, or reconciliation. What Paul says is he goes on to say here to reconcile to himself, making peace. That phrase means there was not peace before. Making peace through the blood of his cross. Now, my friends, that doesn't make sense to us. Let's just be honest. I mean, in all of our normal actions and schemes and plans and interactions with other people, we use a very barbaric perspective of might makes right and peace through superior firepower. That was actually a slogan of a mercenary magazine that I read a bunch of when I was a cop in the Air Force, Soldiers of Fortune, you know, peace through superior firepower. That's the way we normally work. If you don't believe me, go look down the street at all the marriages falling apart and all the sexually abused kids and so forth. It's might makes right, peace through superior firepower. That's how we function. And what did God do? He came to receive the blows of our might. He came to become the target of our superior firepower onto Himself. Take it upon Himself. And in this, when we're exhausted and can no longer smack Him, when our ammo has finally run out and we can no no longer fire another shot, He draws us then to Himself at peace. Reconciled. And this peace is meant to be worldwide. It's his world rescue operation, whether on earth or in heaven. And so from this divinely made peace with God, right? That's the reconciliation, the first place of reconciliation. We're made at peace with God. Finally, we who were rebels against God, we who raised our fists and used the F word toward God in our hearts and souls, if not from our mouths, I'll have no king over me. We who did that, he came to us. He rescued us and made us at peace with himself. And that peace then begins to flow out this way. If this is the way God did it, how can I be so obtusely angry at you? Another way to put it, 
As one of the Puritans used to say, no one has sinned against you as much as you have sinned against God. And if God was willing to make us at peace with himself through his son, then it begins to impact the way we relate to others. It grows peace in our homes, in our marriages, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, with our creation and with fellow creatures. And you can't miss it when you finally step back and see the course that brings us to communion. Course and communion. Here's the last point. Notice as you look at verses 15 through 20, there's a directional language moving in this passage. Notice verse 16. What's the direction of verse 15? What directional language is it going? In heaven and on earth. Then you look down at verse 20 where he has made peace. Do you look at the directional language? On earth and in heaven. Do you hear it? Drawing heaven and earth together and earth and heaven together. Or as the Apostle Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 1. That God the Father were making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. Which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. To unite all things to himself. To unite all things to himself. Things in heaven and things on earth. The course of creation and the course of creatures set by the captain of the ship. The course of creation and the course of his creatures set by the captain of the ship is the course that leads to communion. Draws Together warring factions because it draws together rebels to himself, him making peace by the blood of his cross. My friends, that's why we're going to sing in the very last hymn at the end of the service, we're going to sing that old song, 111, This Is My Father's World. And that songwriter, when he wrote this, he had more Bible in his little pinky than most of us have in all of our hands. Jesus who died will be satisfied and earth and heaven be one. Well, dear friends, what in the world are we to do with all of this? What should we take away from this? Well, first off, notice, if you're paying attention, notice this ain't no pygmy Jesus that Paul is proclaiming. What Jesus has handed to you and me is he has handed to us red meat, high-protein stuff. And what is protein for? I need to talk to my son here. He's the bodybuilder. What is protein for, Derek? Protein is to build what? Muscle. He's handed to us red meat and high protein to build Christian muscles, to develop our hearts so that we become mature, grown-up Christians. And I hope you hear that because I'm... Fear at times that most of the Christian voices out there are not gunning for mature Christianity, but are handing us cornflakes all the time. High sugar that burns off after the emotional thrill's gone and we're hit a crash. Paul gave us red meat, high protein to build muscles. Him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone that we may present everyone mature in Christ. But further, my friends, especially as you, those of you who have already read Colossians two or three times, you know where this is headed. 
to become swayed by the vain philosophies and the empty deceits, by the elemental spirits of the world. To be swayed by them is to fall back into the morass and the misery of political saviors, of economic redeemers, of cultural messiahs who can do nothing, who can do nothing other than become puffed up without reason by their sensual minds. Chapter 2, 18. Who regulate us with touch not, taste not, handle not. Chapter 2, verse 21. Whose ways and means have only an appearance of wisdom and self-made spirituality pushing on everyone. Pushing on everyone else, usually. The severity to the body that has no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Because they are pushing a pygmy Jesus. And so eschew the pygmy Jesuses and stick with this Jesus. Lastly, my friends, if God cares this much about turning rebels around and reconciling us to himself, I mean, God cares this much if God cares this much. And if God cares this much about taking us who were warring with him and bringing us into real peace, peace that launches upward with the Father, right through the Son with the Father, if he cares that much, then we should expect and we should be longing for and we should be already positioned to let that peace then ripple outwards. Vertically, or horizontally. Vertically, horizontally. Sorry, I got messed up. Horizontally. We ourselves should become concerned. Just as concerned as God is with reconciliation, with peacemaking, rather than harboring in our hearts anger, rage, hate, rather than harboring in our hearts offensiveness and offendedness. There are some who make a living out of being offended. We should not harbor in our hearts those things because of this Jesus and what God did in him to save us and make us at peace with him. My friends, this is the gospel ground under our feet to give us solid turf so that we can get on with the gospel and the grass doesn't come up underneath us so we can move on with the gospel and it impact our lives and those around us. Let's pray. We thank you, our Lord and our God, that your Son, Jesus Christ, has come for us and for our salvation. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the firstborn of all creation, the ruler, the highest of the kings of the earth. Thank you that in you, all things were made, or through you, all things were made, and they're for you, and that you hold all things together. Thank you that even though we, as part of your rebellious creation, turned our backs to you, yet you came into our creation, into our createdness to save us and to rescue us and to draw us, your bandits, your banditos, your brigands, to draw us at peace to the Father through the blood of the cross. Forgive us, Lord, for making and thinking that anger and outrage and offensiveness are godly virtues. Forgive us, Lord, for thinking that offendedness makes us right with you. Help us, Lord, to flesh out and to live out the conciliation you 
began there at the cross to draw us in peace to you. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.